2 Samuel 24. As you know, we've been in this chapter a little while. And, and, and the thing about 2 Samuel 24, if you remember, I challenged you, study this out. Grapple with this chapter, and we'll do this together. And there's going to be two or three more sermons still to come from 2 Samuel 24, because there's some really deep-seated stuff here. We've done one. Here's the second one, and it's going to be this. I, why is this chapter where it is? I'm pretty convinced that chronologically it's out of order. But there becomes a time where it doesn't really matter whether it's chronologically accurate or not. If this is where it has it in Scripture, that's where it needs to be in the presentation. Uh, but why would you end, uh, why would the, the Samuel's writer end the story of David with such uh, a kind of negative story about David? Why would he put it here? Uh, why end the story in his point of view? Of course, First Kings, they're going to set this back up, you know, and David still has some stuff to go. But the bulk of his life is in First and Second Samuel, and you, and you end in such a, I don't know, it's a moment I really wouldn't want recorded is my final word, I guess is what I would say. And that's what I kind of wonder about this. That's what this lesson today is to me about an answer to that, or at least a suggestion of an answer to that. God, I think, uh, in the book of Samuels is using the two books of Samuel are, are, is kind of presenting the idea of what is a man after God's own heart? What is, what is it about a person that makes you reflective of the nature of God? That God himself would label. David didn't label himself this. The author did. A man after God's own heart. It's not, this is, this is not a glamorous way to finish it. It's a realistic, honest way of finishing it. Uh, and it's authentic, for sure. But what it ends up doing is, in 1 and 2 Samuel, we have the first two kings. After Samuel was rejected and the people demand, we want a king like everybody else. We want to be like everybody else. And God gives them the king, uh, the kind of king that they would want in, in Saul. That doesn't work out so well. And then God picks his own for the second one. And this becomes the standard as you go into Kings, you go into Chronicles, and they start describing all the kings that follow David. They all are compared to David. David is like the standard. This is what God sets up as the standard. And I think that's why he ends this book this way, even though it seems very odd. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 15. You know the story. Uh, it's very familiar to us. Saul had this clear command from God. God gave it no less than three times in these three verses here that start out chapter 15. Um, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. And here's Samuel giving Saul his orders. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek. Devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill both uh, man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. And there's another difficult thing for us to grasp. So Saul summoned the people and he numbered them and 200,000 men on foot. And they, and they go out. It's very clear what God wants. It's very emphatic. And yet, he fails to honor this, as you know. And God comes to Samuel again in verse 10. I regret I have made Saul king. 
He's turned back from following me, has not performed my commandments. As simple as that, he just doesn't keep my commandments. And Samuel was angry and cried to the Lord all night. He was so upset about this. Notice Saul's behavior about this. He brings back some of the animals alive. He brings back King Agag, which is obviously not utterly destroying everybody. Verse 13, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul comes out and speaks first. I want you to notice, he sees Samuel coming. Samuel, the one who gave him the direct command from God, he sees Samuel coming, and he says, Blessed be you to the Lord, I perform the commandment of the Lord. He says, I've done exactly what you told me, and he hasn't. He doesn't even recognize that he dishonored the command of God. He actually thinks he did it. Verse 13. Verse 14. Samuel said, Well, if that's the case, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen? Why do I hear leftover animals that should have been destroyed? And Saul said, they've brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best. And I'm like, do you hear yourself, Saul? You are explaining how you disobeyed, and you don't even register this. Even when Samuel points it out, he does not see his sin, which is just unbelievable. 14 and 15, Samuel said, stop, I'm going to tell you what the Lord has told me, and he does tell him, but I want you to look at verse 19 again. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Even when he meticulously goes through the command and says, you didn't do it, he thinks he did. How can you be in disrespect, rebellion against God, and not even recognize it? Think that you are in good standing. It's crazy, isn't it? That's where Saul has gotten. Not only does he not see his sin, but he can't see the sin when it's pointed out by the prophet. Verse 21, finally he does. The people took the spoil. So let's blame other people. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord. Your words, because I feared the people. I obeyed what they told me. I'm pointing my finger of blame. And he pulls off an eve. It's this, and it pulls off an atom. It's this. It's, I'm not going to take responsibility for it. It's someone else's fault. And then he tries to spiritualize it. What we wanted to do was make a sacrifice. We wanted to make this really impressive sacrifice. But you see, here's the thing. It's not a sacrifice if the animal isn't yours. The animals belonged to God. God took ownership of these animals in this battle, and that's why he wanted them slaughtered. He wanted the sacrifice in the midst of battle. I want you to slaughter them all in battle. That's your sacrifice to me. But here's Saul, here's Saul thinking, it's going to look so impressive when I offer up all these animals, and it looks like I've really sacrificed for God when it really isn't my sacrifice at all. He spiritualizes his disobedience. You ever tried to do that yourself? You ever try to put a spiritual twist on your sin? Try, try to make it sound like really impressive, almost godly? People do this all the time. And Saul does it here. And then in verse 25, Now therefore, just pardon my sin, return, I can bow down before the Lord. Let's just make this look okay. Let's just make it look okay to the people. And then verse 30, he does it again. 
when he says, I've sinned, but honor me now before the elders of the people before Israel return with me. I want you to, I want you to go back with me as if everything looks okay. I don't, want everybody, I don't want the people to know. Let's not let the people know I've sinned. Let's just kind of keep it undercover between you and me. Go take care of it privately. And finally, the last thing is that in 32 and 33, Samuel's the one who has to kill Agag. Saul never does repent and go back and complete the command at all. Samuel has to do it. That's what you see. There's no attempt at repentance here. There's no acknowledgement of wrong. There's no remorse. There's no conviction. There's this, this sense that his heart starts turning on him. You ever have your heart turn on you because your heart knows better than your brain what you've done? It's informed by the Spirit of God and starts convicting you, and you can't sleep, and you can't get this right. You can't even lie anymore because it's just disturbing you so badly. Well, Saul doesn't have that. And God says, I'm done with you. This sounds an awful lot like how Paul describes worldly sorrow in 2, Samuel chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 7. When he's, there's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. I'm a, I, I hate that I got caught. I hate that it's costing me anything. And as soon as, like Pharaoh, as soon as the consequences can go away, so will, so will any remorse. See, that's the first king, and... God could no longer stand it. This wasn't his first mistake, but it was the last one before God finally strips the kingdom from him. So is David all that much different? What makes David different? It's not that he was sinless. You know as well as I do, his sins were maybe worse in our categories. They were worse than Saul's. And we often think, of course, of Bathsheba and Uriah and all that stuff. But in 2 Samuel 24, the last word the Samuel writer is going to share with us, he says, oh, lest you think that David's only mistake was in those things, let's talk about this event right here. And it's, he starts taking a census, and we talked about why that was sinful in this case. But I want you to notice the different response of David. Verse 10 of 2 Samuel 24 but David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. He, even without the help, even though if you're helped by a prophet or another person, there's nothing wrong with that. But David didn't even need that. He was struck in the heart after he numbered the people. His entire demeanor tur turned on him, right? And David said to the Lord, he doesn't go find a person. He doesn't go find a prophet. He goes directly to God, and he says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Who did it? David did. There's no blaming anybody. There's no pointing fingers at anybody. David takes responsibility. He felt the conviction of his wrong. You know the difference between I will admit that I did wrong and when you are convicted, conviction, there's, a, there's an internal struggle with you about your behavior. It's not just that I tell you, yeah, I did something wrong and go on. I did something wrong and it absolutely tears me up inside. That's where David was. And he confesses his sin. He takes personal responsibility for the sin. And he actually utters words of confession and a, and a request for forgiveness. But now, O oh Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant. I have done very 
foolishly. It's a beautiful thing. This is not what you hear when a politician apologizes for an immoral act. Have you listened to an apology from a politician on the news? If I have offended anyone, that puts the beat on you, not him. If what I did offended you, well then, I'm just so sorry you have such a soft conscience. None of that. David says, yep, I did it, and I feel terrible, and I want to make this right. But I want you to skip down to verse 14. When all of a sudden he has been given this option of how he's going to be punished. David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord. God says three years, three months, three days. Which do you want, right? And, and, and David is, is understanding that this is a consequence for his sin. Not only his, but all of Israel. Now if you're wondering, here's one of the questions. Why, why is Israel punished and 70,000 people die but it doesn't hurt David directly? This isn't just punishment on David. If you look at chapter 24, verse 1, Israel had sinned. It doesn't say why. It doesn't say the immediate cause of God's anger. God's angry at all of Israel. He is punishing all of Israel and David for whatever was their behavior here that he found offensive. And he accepts these consequences and says, I'm going to put it in the hands of God and let him decide. And he does. Skip down again to verse 17. Behold, I have sinned. This verse 17 and verse 16 happen at the same time. David sees, and you'll see on that picture that's up there, David sees the angel and its sword. It's like he's given this glimpse behind the curtain of the spiritual going on, and this angel is about to hit Jerusalem real hard, and particularly this one spot. David sees it, and he's so convicted that he repents again. And notice his words. David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Well, sorry, verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and he said, Behold, I have sinned. I've done wickedly. These sheep, what have they done? Let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And God was so compelled, and God was so moved by what David prayed that he stopped the angel right there, short of the full three-day period, I take it. And as a result, David buys this at expense to himself. He buys this land and makes the sacrifice. He buys oxygen, oxygen, oxen from this man and offers up the sacrifice right there. And it becomes the spot where the temple is built. But he makes this sacrifice. You know what this sacrifice is? It is a completely open, candid, public display to the whole nation of his sin. I'm not trying to make myself look better. I'm offering up a sacrifice, a sin offering here for what we and I have done. He doesn't try to hide it, and it costs him something. I believe the Samuel author was highlighting what makes a good king in Israel so that when the rest of the kings start being described, you'll know the standard that God has in mind. And here's the beautiful thing. God never demanded a flawless life. It's not your sinlessness that he's after. It's your faithfulness. It's your humility 
that is able to recognize when you've fallen short and you know what to do when you do. No trying to make it look better, no trying to run from the consequences, but you simply confess. A person after God's own heart has bad moments. You are not judged for your worst moment. That's not going to carry the day on your story. But when you have a bad moment, what you do then is the sweet spot. What you do then is what determines whether you're a person after God's own heart or not. Do you have uh, such a desire to serve God that you recognize when you've fallen short? And do you have such a concern about having fallen short that you're willing to confess it and take responsibility for it and go before God and ask for His forgiveness? It's going to be offered. It's going to be given. But what are you going to do? What's God looking for? Not the person who never messes up, but the one who fesses up after they've messed up. So fess up when you mess up, and God will bless you up, right? That's kind of the story. God just says, I, I love it when you can recognize it. And I love it when you're so sensitive that you're willing to say, this breaks my heart. And, and here's an interesting thing. I think this is kind of um, an interesting thing about the Lord's Supper. If you got, uh, this just hit me on the way here, and I decided this makes sense here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read this every, um, every week or two before the communion. But there's this thing he says that when you come together, you, you, you examine yourself, Right? Whoever, um, you eat the bread, drink the cup, proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of concerning the body and the blood of, G of the Lord. Let a person examine himself when he eats of it. What are you examining yourself about? What is the test you're taking? What is this CAT scan spiritually that you're doing on yourself when you take this bread and you take this fruit of the vine for anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body and that's not jesus body that's this one because he doesn't put blood with it too you discern the body if you're not saying how am i in relation to all the other people gathered here if i'm not careful I'll do this and I'll drink judgment on myself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and I don't think this is a spiritualized hyperbole either. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. Isn't that weird? If you use this time to truly judge you yourself, you won't be judged. See, if you will do your own kind of self-correction, God doesn't have to bring any kind of judgment, nor does any elder, nor does any preacher, nor does any other brother or sister. If you are self-correcting, you need not to have a special, you know, a whole revamping, right, of your life from outside yourself, even from the Lord himself. Judging yourself. What's recently become one of my favorite verses in memorization is Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one... Whom I esteem highly, God says. You, you, you should lean in. Do you, want, do you want God's respect? 
This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at my word. This is the one I esteem. This is the one I'm looking for. This is the follower I most delight in. He who is humble and contrite in heart. It's not that he doesn't mess up. It's that he fesses up when he messes up. And he knows it. And he comes before me. He doesn't go make excuses and he doesn't run away. He comes straight to me. And he's a humble and contrite in heart. It breaks easy. His heart breaks easily. And then he trembles at my word. He respects it. And when he transgresses it, his heart is made heavy. And the only thing he knows to do is to go before his God. And God will delight in forgiving you. It's when we run. It's when we justify. It's when we harden our hearts to where we no longer even recognize when we transgress that we are in dangerous territory that I think 1 Corinthians 11 is talking about. You don't want to get there. Fess up when you mess up. That's the heart God's looking for. You are not being asked to be perfect. Why do we know that? God knows your humanity. He just asks that you know it too. And that you know your humanity in the presence of His deity. And if you will maintain that, that humble, contrite heart and tremble at his word, you are the person after his very own heart. Anybody need to repent in a way that might need this congregation's attention? What is this for? When we end a sermon and say, if you sin, you need the congregation. Because listen, if you gathered around the Lord's Supper and you did your own judging, you don't need to do this. Your judgment took place right there this morning between you and God. And that goes on all the time. But once in a while, there are people that like, I just need to see the face of people. And I just need to recognize God's look of me. And so when people need the help and need to just say it, or maybe they've offended other people in a public manner and they want to publicly make it correct, that's what we provide this for. And then sometimes people just need to say it to their family. There's no law about this. But this evening, if for whatever reason... You can't make things right with God on your own before Him and you need the help of this congregation. We'd love to help you as we stand and as we sing.